Well, this Sunday, in some ways, we come to the end of Epiphany. I say in some ways because next week is the week that's set aside every year for the Transfiguration, and technically it's part of Epiphany, but it usually feels a bit different. And then Ash Wednesday will be upon us soon, March 1st, and then comes Lent. Um, But this week, this last week of Epiphany, which means, you know, the word Epiphany means to show or to make known or to reveal. Well, the Anglican Church of North America has designated this week, so all over the world, people are celebrating this as World Mission Sunday. And of course, you know, the great scripture for that is Acts 1-8, that we would become God's witnesses even to the ends of the earth. So World Mission Sunday. And one of the things I want to say this morning is that what we have in our scripture readings this morning is a, an epiphany or a revelation of Christ-based virtue. And that that virtue is an important part of witnessing today. I, I don't mean to say that, you know, we have to be good enough for people to come to Christ. I, we don't want to turn this into another legalism. But the world left to itself, thinking that nothing or no one can change, is not likely to be a world that turns themselves to God. But when the world can see that God has not abandoned himself to the world and that change is possible and that the cultivation of virtue is possible and that loving your neighbor is possible, well, then that, is, that provides then, uh, you might say, uh, at least a beginning rationale, a hope that maybe there is a God who continues to be active on the earth. And so when we come to our prayers of the people this morning, you'll be guided into, in your heart at least, wrapping those prayers around world mission. All right, so I'll bet not many of you woke up this morning thinking, honey, let's go to church, we're going to read Leviticus. That's fantastic. Everybody loves Leviticus. Let's go to church. Well, Leviticus is none of our favorite books probably, But it has some sense to it. And the basic sense of Leviticus is this, that the early chapters, approximately the first 10 chapters, were meant to shape Israel's imagination around their sacrificial worship and how that was intended to help shape them into God's people. Uh, The next number of chapters are often called the purity code. It talks about what it means to have purity before God. And our readings this morning come from what is known as the holiness code. And what you need to know about Leviticus is mostly this, that this is meant, all of this, the sacrificial part, the purity part, the holiness part, this is all there to help the people of God come to understand and come to grips with their election. The the biblical doctrine of election is hugely important. We tend to reduce it to, you know, especially if if you're a Calvinist, right? We tend to reduce it to who gets to go to heaven and who doesn't. And we we use terms like double election and those sorts of things. In my humble opinion, those are not, you know, very good biblical categories. The biblical category for election is something like this. Hey, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You don't actually have a choice in this. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And it's going to be hard, but don't worry, I'll protect you. People will come against you, but don't worry, I'll take care of you. And then verse 3, Genesis 12, 3, gives us the rationale. That this great nation I'm making is meant to be a blessing to the whole earth. 
You are going to signal to the earth that me, the one true creator Lord, has not abandoned his broken creation. That's the doctrine of election. It is the choosing of the one for the good of the many. It's not about getting our little rear ends into heaven when we die. It includes that, but it mustn't ever be reduced to that. Election, let me say it again, is the finger of God on the one for the good of all. And so Leviticus is just the beginning of God sort of being a personal trainer to his people and saying, now here's the kind of things you need to think about. This is the way sacramental worship is meant to train you into this vocation. This is why purity is important. It is, this will now shape you into being my people on the earth. And this is why the holiness code, you know, we read, you know, I am the Lord, I am holy. This is why this is important to you. It's to show them how they're set apart for good. And again, to show them that God has not abandoned the world to sin. And so what we read in Leviticus is not just ritual purity, but it's meant to be a training towards virtue. And I I mean that in the technical sense this morning. I I can't unpack it much, but essentially what I mean here is something like this is meant to train Israel in qualities of being. Or a phrase that's a little more popular today that gets at least a little bit to virtue ethics is habits of the heart. It's meant to train the, the basic inclinations of their hearts. And of course, Jesus is standing in this, the exact same tradition when he says, it's out of the abundance of the heart the mouth does speak. That it's not, or when he says, it's not things exterior to you that defile you, but the things that come from within you. He's standing in the exact same tradition saying that what God is shooting for here is never just ritual purity, whether in the Levitical sense or in you know, first century sense of what Jesus was facing, but it's more a changing of the heart. So when we're asked to become holy, it doesn't mean that we never have another bad thought. It doesn't mean that we never say another curse word. I mean, that would be nice, but it's not what it means. What it means is something like, act like those who are elected. Being holy means to be set apart. So act like those who are set apart. And then you just have a bunch of for instances. Don't steal. Don't slander. Leave something of your crops for the poor. Now I am very far, I am very, very far from perfect, obviously. But I can put my hand over my heart and say this. Just looking at my friend Todd here, for instance. I would never steal something from Todd or my friend Dan. It would never cross my mind to take something from somebody whom I cherish. That would just be the farthest thing from my mind. So can you see how in that sense, I am set apart for someone else's good? Rather, I would actively work for the good of Dan or Todd or any of the rest of you or anybody else in my life. I I would actively work for the good, but it would just be the furthest thing from my mind to like intentionally harm somebody. I would have to cross so many virtuous lines. Are you, are you feeling me here? I'd have to cross so many contrary habits of the heart that it would be very difficult for me to get there. Now again, I don't mean to say I'm perfect. Obviously, I'm far from it. But are you feeling me here? This is what set apartness means. This is what election means. And the call of the, the law and the prophets is just to live into this set apartness. Now obviously, I have a very strong bias 
towards God, and I like what God's up to here. But you don't have to be a genius sociologist to say that it seems today that no matter what political or ideological or economic or whatever viewpoint, ethnic, tribal, religion, religious, you know, vantage point that someone's coming from, it sure seems like in our current world, no one seems to really want God or what he wants. I mean, am I nuts? Do you hear a lot of cry for, let's be good? Let's see if we can discover who God is and fit into his plan. Do you hear a lot of cry for that? You know, thinking of the summit that's been happening in, in Germany this weekend. You know, there's all kinds of talk about the world and what's happening and Europe and the Western world and how does this work in modern history and the refugee crisis and economic issues. There's all this stuff happening. But you never hear a serious person invoke this story. It's been largely abandoned as failed. And I would just want to humbly suggest it's actually left untried. It's largely left untried. That there would actually be a people who their fundamental sense of themselves is not what I can consume or who I can marry or where I can live, but their fundamental sense of themselves is I exist in the tribe of Abraham for the good of others. Now you just get a little bit of that going in parliament. Get a little bit of that going in the European Union. Get a little bit of that going in tribal African thinking. Get a little bit of that going amongst Latin American dictators. You get a little bit of that going amongst our corporate world that's gone astray. You just get a little bit of that going and you've got Jesus' vision of salt and light and its transformative effect, how it actually then works for the good of others. So it always makes me think how our world would be different if we had the heart of the psalmist. You might just glance over our psalm reading this morning. How I long for your precepts. What if we had suddenly hundreds of thousands of world leaders saying, teach me, Lord, give me understanding, turn my heart towards your statutes, direct me in the path of your commands so that I might keep your law and obey it with all my heart. And then there's these stunning words. For there I find delight. And, and this is where I think we, even some of us in this room want to go, oh, come on. You know, you find delight in a Haagen-Dazs bar. <laughs> right? I find delight in German chocolate cake, a root beer float, you know. But come on. I find delight in doing good. I find delight in trying to align my heart with God's heart for the universe. Like, come on. No one finds delight in that. You find religious uptightness. You find moralistic backstabbers. You find hypocrites. Come on. Who finds delight in this? And this is what I mean by it largely remains untried. But the psalmist is not talking out of ideology. The psalmist is not spouting religious rhetoric. The psalmist is describing a kind of life that he, but it could be a she, was experiencing. I actually find delight 
in knowing God and what he's up to. And then the, the interesting human journey of taking all of my brokenness and fractured thinking and bringing it into alignment with what God says is true and best for humanity. So now think of that psalmist's heart and now let's sort of rethink Leviticus. So again, I'm not gonna read it to you, but just let your eyes now fall over our passage in Leviticus. Paraphrasing these commands. So, so now think of that, that heart of the psalmist and, and hear Leviticus this way. I find delight in not stealing, in not lying, in not deceiving or swearing falsely or slandering or harming my neighbor. I find delight in it. I find pleasure in paying fair wages and caring for those with severe medical challenges. I delight in impartial justice. I delight in not hating others, in not bearing grudges or seeking revenge. So now so I got the psalmist in that heart, the heart for how the law was supposed to be interacted with. And now hear Jesus say, this is the good life. This is the narrow road. Not many people go down it. Not because it's so hard, it's actually the good life. It's the broad way that's hard. It's the broad way that leads to destruction and addiction and, and um, consumption, you know, radical, never satisfied consumption, whatever. That's the broad way. And it leads to death, separation from God. But just hear Jesus now standing amongst, his first audience was Israel, it wasn't us 21st century Americans. It was Israel and he was begging them, can't you see this is the good way? This is the good life. Enter it. This is God. When God called you, he called you into a good thing to be his people on the earth. And so then when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, as we've been reading in this last part of Matthew 5, we have Jesus, in a sense, putting forward these unique, what we would now call Christian virtues, right? It's a vision for a different kind of justice. It's a, it's a vision that goes beyond Leviticus and that it's not meant to just prevent unbridled revenge, but for Jesus, it's meant to loose a creative, healing, restorative response to injustices or personal hurts to us. And these responses are meant to reflect the creation and patience and the end of God. It essentially is an invitation to live into this story of God. I love the way Eugene gets it in the message. He says, just no more of this tit-for-tat stuff. You misunderstood Leviticus in the first place. It never meant to say tit-for-tat. So just get rid of this tit-for-tat thinking you've got in your head, this worldview you have that's dominated by tit-for-tat, and just live generously into the love of God. Receiving it for yourself, passing it on to others. So when he says things like, so I'm telling you to love your enemies, again, that's one of those things where we all go, all right. Right, I mean, we don't even have most of us mental categories for that. What could that possibly mean? To will the good of somebody who considers themselves your enemy. And so what happens mostly over the last couple of thousand years is these kinds of ideas of Jesus, they really just become guilt-producing moralisms. And we again, it's an adventure in missing the point. I mean, as soon as I say this, you're gonna go, well, duh. Loving your enemy was fundamental to being Israel. Everybody around them was their enemy. 
How could they be God's good people on earth if they hated everybody around them? Everybody around them who, much like today, wanted them out of existence. Although I've got to hasten to say there's no correlation between the modern nation state of Israel and ancient Israel. But you're, you're picturing me here. Israel has had a long, long history of, of being misunderstood and or hated. So if they didn't love their enemies, who were they going to love? Who were they going to stand for the good of? So Jesus isn't giving us some legalistic moralism. He's simply saying, this is definitional. And there's a, there's a great Greek phrase for this, the ethne, E-T-H-N-E, the ethne. In, in Greek, it means the others. We, we get our ideas of xenophobia, uh, the, that's the negative of willing the good of the ethne, all the others. Jesus says you're to will God, that the meaning of Abraham through John the Baptist and up to me, the meaning of that story is to love those who are currently outside of God, to love those who are currently malaligned and have broken hearts and twisted minds and consciences that are destroyed. Those are the very people that you're meant to love. You can't hold them in your heart as your enemy. This is fundamental to the divine plan. They had to come to realize, Jesus knew, that the other Jewish factions and the ethne were to be the objects of their generous affection, not strife, not rejection, not hatred, but genuinely willing their good. And so Jesus' nutty idea is, let these people bring out the best in you, not the worst in you. That's that nutty Jesus idea. And this is where I always want to sort of, you know, metaphorically stand up and pound the pulpit or whatever and go and just say, I am a complete Jesus freak. I think he actually knows what he's talking about. And even when I don't quite get it in some aspect of my being, you know, body, soul, will, thoughts, feelings, even when there's some aspect of my being that feels a little malaligned to that, I always come back to the center that says, okay, my thoughts or feelings about this might feel a little skewed, but I think Jesus is a freaking genius. I think he has the best information possible about what it means to be human in the image of God. And what it means to be called to be a part of the people of God. And when he says things like this, these things actually align. They correspond to really important realities. He doesn't just fling out little mysterious sayings. And so the idea here is don't don't let the people who are against you bring out the worst of you. No, let them bring out the set and apartness. Are you feeling me here? Let them bring out your election. This is why you're here. You're you're elected to let the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the the set-apartness, these challenges are to pull that out of you. Not this sort of tit-for-tat, you harmed me, I'm going to harm you back. So again, I love the way Eugene gets this little bit in the message where he says, so in a word, what I'm saying to you is grow up. That's so Eugene. So what I'm saying to you is just grow up. You know, just change, transform. Your kingdom subjects, now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. So what we see here in this part of the Sermon on the Mount that we read this morning are not abstract moralisms. This isn't Jesus being a professor of ethics at UCLA. This, This is not that kind of thing. 
This is Jesus basically sketching out. The, 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 now, this is what I have in mind. So you, you literally, you need to think of it as like a sketch, an illustration, almost like a cartoon that is meant to help people think about their daily life in new ways. And essentially what Jesus is saying is something like this. Citing religious laws derived from the Pentateuch, that's what Israel would have thought of when they thought of the law. So for instance, Leviticus, as we read it this morning, citing those laws, dividing yourself up around their interpretations, using those interpretations then to hate each other. This is why Leviticus says, don't despise another person in Israel. Jesus is saying that is a fundamental misunderstanding of what's happening here. That being able to cite and argue over those laws the way, you know, rabbi, and I'm not picking on Jewish people or rabbis, Christians do the same thing, but to just argue over rabbinic midrashes and all that stuff. But Jesus is saying it's just another adventure in missing the point. Essentially what he's saying is you have to be in this process. This is not about a disembodied IRS tax code. This is not a disembodied Costa Mesa municipal code. This is not that kind of relationship. This is a relationship with a person who called you into being and shaped you into being with him in this process of learning to exist for others' good. And so Jesus is saying, you have to be in this process. And so you know what this means, the way you can see that this is not a legalism. What if there was a, a surgeon who was on his way to perform an emergency surgery, let's say brain surgery or something, or open heart surgery, and he finds a soldier on the road saying, hey, go another mile with him. The virtuous thing would might be to say, hey, tomorrow, but I can't right now. But see, if you turn this into a law, the surgeon may actually then transgress the law of love. Are you feeling me here? If you turn this into a religious tidbit, then you have to say, well, I've got, the, I, you know, I got this other thing to do, but well, you know, the law says I got to go another mile. It was never intended to be that. It was, these little sketches are just meant to suck you up as persons into this new way of being in the world. These are just little sketches for how you might practically love somebody, but it's never meant to set you aside. You know, if you're a fireman and to go save a family of six if you leave, might actually be the virtuous thing to do that comes out of a habit of the heart. You can always go back when the fire's over and give that guy your coat. Are you tracking with me here? And Jews, Christians, and Islam are all guilty of this one thing. Here's one way that we are all simultaneously guilty, and that is making laws out of these things. I would want to say humbly, the greatest and best path out of that is in following Christ. That's my conviction. But Christians miss this as well. This is meant to shape a heart, a mind, a worldview, a sense of myself that I exist in this world for the good of others. And so, I, therefore, I might not be able to precisely obey Jesus by giving this guy my coat because I'm going to save six people. But as I said, if I come back and see that you still need a coat, I can give you my coat too but I can't reduce myself to that. And so the key thing here that Jesus is teaching is that there's a knowledge that can only come from participation, from a kind of genuine and living faith that gives themselves to it. And so the idea is that even an inconsistent participant 
understands this way of life better than the most fair-minded spectator. Are you feeling me? Like if you've ever tried to play an instrument, like we could, like uh, think of my friend Bob here, we can watch Bob and think, wow, he plays well. But even trying to fumble with a guitar and to play your first chord or to try to play your first bar chord and to get those strings not to buzz, that little bit of participation is exquisitely and far better than mere religious observation. Jesus is calling us in to participate in this. This is what gives it the difference between moralism and habits of the heart. This is what connects it. This is what makes it virtuous. Is that it's not something that's external to us. But it's meant to be in us and and an aspect of of our, our, our createdness in God. So then following Jesus happens not so much ideologically, but personally and locally in concrete persons and events in our lives. So the question then as we read this passage in Matthew is never did I do the precise illustration the question is look at me here please the question is am I becoming the kind of person Jesus is illustrating that's the question not did I keep the law it's am I becoming the kind of person for whom I care about those who don't have a coat and I would give them mine So I know when we read passages like this, Leviticus, Psalm, Jesus, it can sound sometimes just like good advice or moralisms, but sound impossible, especially when we hear things like be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And again, this doesn't mean what we think. It just means something like just begin to shoot for perfect love. Just begin to shoot for alignment with God. Just make alignment with your election, your passionate aim or ideal. Just like an athlete says, I want to break the 10-second mark of, of, well, these days, I don't know, what's a world-class time, 9-7 or something, I don't know. So now you got this young kid who thinks, you know, I want to run the 100 meters in world record time. Well, can you see how that then begins to suck up all the dis- disparate aspects of their life? And so then it shapes how they eat, it shapes how they sleep, it shapes hopefully what they take or don't take, right, in terms of supplements. It begins to shape everything just by having that one passionate aim. And this is what it means to shoot for perfection. It doesn't mean actual, you know, um, I never get anything wrong. It just means I have this passionate goal in me and then the rest kind of takes care of itself. And this is important because it relieves us then from the burden we feel of just sort of throwing up our hands and quitting or worse, a a grinding, joy-killing legalism. But we just learn. No, these aren't laws. And I actually could obey these as laws with a wrong heart. I could turn my other cheek while saying, F you. I could keep the law and have a completely wrong heart. I could turn the other cheek while plotting your murder. And let myself off the hook that I've kept the law and completely missed the point of developing a kind of person that just sticks with it. So I know this often leaves us thinking, I don't know, what do I do next? I mean, well, like, what's all this roll up to? And I would just suggest you, I mean, there's more things, uh, there's more things to be said than I would even know, 
certainly more things to be said than I can say here. But what if we just thought this? What if the next, next good step might be to rediscover the psalmist's delight in the law? What if you just shot for that? I, yeah, I, I, I don't get my head wrapped around that. I don't get my heart wrapped around that. I'm going to shoot for that. Or maybe, and this actually would be a nice focus for Lent, for Lent if you're looking for a Lenten focus, you might just say, well, over the next six, seven, eight weeks till Easter, I'm going to just make loving my enemies my Lenten focus. I'm going to just explore my heart, explore my social dynamics, explore the dynamics of my family, my workplace, my neighbors, the people in my life who irritate me, and I'm just going to begin to wonder into this. What would it, what would it what, what would be the habit of my heart that would allow me to love my enemy? Those would be good places to start. They're gentle, they're peaceful, they're non-moralistic, they're journeying, they're very God-oriented. Might be a good place to start. So as we come to our quiet time this morning, if you'll look at your bulletin, you've got this breath prayer by which all epiphany we've been trying to tie together our worship and to set before us this very simple practice of this breath prayer, having heard God's word, to once again sit in quiet and the best you can from the most, the most honest place in your heart to say, turn our hearts to your word. Turn our hearts to you. Turn our hearts to your word. Turn our hearts to you.